So two weeks ago, we had uh, examined a national crisis in the life of the nation of Judah. Uh, It was a crisis that had been brewing for about 20 to 25 years and finally came to fruition uh, in uh, 701 BC. And this crisis was the external threat of the nation of Assyria having invaded the nation and having conquered uh, some of its fortified cities. And uh, even before this crisis came to full fruition, uh, King Hezekiah had made some, uh, some alliances, had formed some alliances with uh, the surrounding nations of Egypt and Phoenicia, some of the uh, nation states of Philistia to mitigate this Assyrian threat and, and hopefully prevent uh, its conquest of the nation. And also he went on to strengthen the defenses to, uh, uh, in, order to, uh, in order to prevent further conquest of, of the, uh, the city of Jerusalem. But we we'll see that despite these uh, actions on the part of uh, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, uh, the Syrian threat continued on and they were right at the doorstep of Jerusalem. And the Rapshaka uh, gives this taunting speech, taunting not only uh, Hezekiah, the, the king, but, but also the people of Israel and, and also uh, Yahweh. He taunts Yahweh, their, so- their sovereign God. And uh, this is got where we left off, and we pick, up, pick back up in uh, at 2 Kings, but we will look at uh, Isaiah chapter 37. Now, 2 Kings is uh, chapter, let's see here. <coughs> Second Kings cha- chapter 18 uh, is verbatim of uh, Isaiah chapter 37. But we'll be spending most of our time in the book of Isaiah chapter 37, and also we will examine Isaiah chapter 10. So let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll seek his help. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, uh, for this time that we could gather together as your people and study your word. I pray that you would uh, help us by your Holy Spirit, uh, open to us the truths, reveal to us the truths that you would have us learn, and help us to be hearers uh, and doers of your word and uh, live out these truths in our lives. Thank you again for what you will do. I pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So after the Rapshika had uh, given his speech, uh, asking for the surrender of the people to Assyria, uh, we see that Hezekiah has a, a different response to the Assyrian threat. And we'll pick, pick up in Isaiah chapter 37 starting in verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. I do have an outline there in the back, and uh, we'll uh, use that outline to guide us uh, in our study this morning. So Hezekiah's initial response is one of mourning. We see that he uh, he tore his clothes and he covered himself in sackcloth. Uh, this action not only signifies mourning, 
but also humility and repentance. And Hezekiah's uh, subsequent actions point towards that. He not only does that, he enters the house of God. By doing so, Hezekiah is returning back to what he had initially done at the start of his reign. Recall uh, in our first lesson, the, the temple had been in disrepair, so Hezekiah orders that the temple be cleansed and, uh, and readied for worship. And Hezekiah enters the temple uh, to worship his God, Yahweh. So here we see Hezekiah returning back to the temple of God. The picture being conveyed here to us is that of a king taking his sorrows and that of his people whom he, whom he represents uh, to the Lord his God in worship. The time for half measures, uh, be it alliances with foreign nations and strengthening of the defenses are long past and they have proved themselves to be futile. Uh, here, Ezekiah begins to understand that God alone uh, can and must save his people from the Assyrians. However, the circumstances uh, are different, are quite different. When Hezekiah initially enters the temple, it's a time of rejoicing and jubilation. The temple has been cleansed uh, and has been readied for worship. They're able to worship uh, Yahweh once again as he should have been. At, but here, 14 years later, this is a time of great sorrow and mourning because of the Assyrian threat. While circumstances have changed for, for the king and his people, there is one constant in this, uh, in this sea of constant change, and that one constant is Yahweh. He is still sovereign and is worthy of worship in his temple. King Hezekiah and the children of Israel are about to fi find out how sovereign their Yahweh truly is. After entering the temple, Hezekiah also seeks out his spokesman, Hosea, uh, which is God's spokesman, who is the prophet Isaiah. And he asks that Isaiah intercede on behalf of the nation. And we see that in, starting in verse 2. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, this, is, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and re will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So Hezekiah, in his word to God's prophet Isaiah, is concerned about the glory of Yahweh, who is mocked by the king, by the Assyrian king. And he asked that God would rebuke this king for his mockery of him. And Isaiah's response is, don't be afraid. You don't have to fear this Assyrian king or the threat that he poses. He will return back and he will die in his own land. And we see that, that there, uh, the, the Rapshaka, starting in verse, uh, verse 8, the Rapshaka returned and found the, Assyri the king of Assyria fighting against Libna. 
So the rapture hears a rumor that uh, something else is going on, that there's another threat to the Assyrians. So he departs from being at, uh, uh, at the doorstep of Jerusalem with his army, and he, and he sees that uh, uh, Sennacherib is no longer at Lachish, having abandoned his siege, siege of Lachish, and is now fighting another threat, supposed threat, at Libna. But before doing so, uh, as before uh, Sennacherib departs from the nation of Judah, he sends another letter to the king of Assyria. And this letter we read in, uh, in starting in verse 10. He says, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? So the, the king of Assyria in his letter basically is telling, threatening Hezekiah, uh, do not trust in your God. Don't trust Yahweh. He has no ability to deliver you. You're merely going to be deceived by putting your trust in him. And look around you. Look at what I have done to the surrounding nations, how I have conquered them. Have their gods been able to deliver them out of their hands? So he's, he's, he's trying to convince Hezekiah to take his eyes off of Yahweh, his God, and to look at the circumstances and be afraid, and to capitulate, to give in to Assyria and to surrender to them. He's basically saying, you have no hope, so you might as well give in to us right now. Or when I come back, I will show no mercy. I'm showing some mercy now, I will no longer be as merciful when I return to conquer your nation. So how does Hezekiah respond to this? We've already seen that in the past he has, had formed an alliance, he had strengthened the defenses, but we see here that Hezekiah has a different response. He had already entered the temple of God in worship and in seeking his help. He had already turned to uh, God's spokesman, Isaiah the prophet, to get a word from God, for God to intervene uh, in his life and in the life of, his, of, the, of the nation. We see that Hezekiah turns his eyes towards the Lord in prayer. Read with me in uh, chapter 37, starting in verse 14. Hezekiah re received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. So he reads the letter after receiving it, and the next thing he does is he returns back to the temple. And uh, the picture is he, he, he opens the letter, it's, it's likely in the form of a scroll, so he opens it and he spreads it out. Uh, I don't, it, it's not stated where, probably at the threshold or uh, uh, before uh, the Ark of the Covenant, I'm not sure. Uh, but the idea that we are to get here is that Hezekiah is casting all his anxieties upon the Lord his God because God cares for him. First Peter 5, 7. 
The next thing that Hezekiah do, uh, begins to do is in verse 16, he begins to adore and magnify the Lord. He addresses God saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. <clears throat> Isaiah calls upon God by his name. There are two names that Hezekiah uses in calling upon God. The first name is Jehovah Sabaoth. That means Lord of hosts. The word Jehovah means existing one or Lord. And this denotes God as being one who is revealing himself unceasingly to his people. Jehovah Sabaoth can also be translated as Lord of the armies. So in calling God by this name, Lord of hosts, Hezekiah is acknowledging that God is the sovereign king over all the armies of the, of the earth, over all the rulers, be it earthly or spiritual. And the second name that, God, that Hezekiah uses in calling upon God is the name God of Israel. He evokes the Hebrew word Elohim, which means God. So, so uh, there's a distinction needs to be made here. Uh, he is uh, using the word God of Israel in a different sense. Yes, God is the God of Assyria, the God of Edom, the God of Philistia, in, in the sense that he is their creator. He is their sovereign king, having created them and is ruling over them. Whether they, whether they acknowledge him to be their king or not is irrelevant. But here, in referring to Israel, God, uh, Hezekiah, is using the covenantal name of God. See, God has a special covenant relationship with his people Israel that is distinct from that of Philistia and Edom and Egypt. Um, in calling on Elohim as being of Israel, Hezekiah is claiming the promise that Yahweh had made to the nation in Leviticus chapter 26, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. So Hezekiah in calling on God as Elohim of Israel is claiming the covenant promise of Yahweh being their Elohim. Hezekiah also refers to God as being enthroned above the cherubim. Here, Hezekiah is referring to God as being the sovereign king, not, not just over mere men, but over the mighty angels. He is also acknowledging that God's Shekinah glory had entered the temple when Solomon had dedicated the temple for worship, having built it. And it had uh, descended upon the Ark of the Covenant and was resting upon the Ark of the Covenant. God had placed his name and, and condescended to allow himself to be worshipped among the nation of Israel. E.J. Young in his commentary on Isaiah says, By means of reference to the cherubim, Hezekiah is in no sense entertaining crass thoughts about God. He well knows that God is not limited or bound to a specific locality. He does not place God in the category of the idols whom Sennacherib worships, but God himself had chosen the temple to be his dwelling place, that he might be in the midst of his people. 
The temple then signifies to Israel that God was in her midst. In making this reference to the cherubim, Hezekiah is merely reminding himself that God is present with him and his people in the beleaguered city of Jerusalem. End quote. Psalm 46 says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth, is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Hezekiah also declares, says to God, <coughs> You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. He says, You are Elohim. You alone are the one true God of all the nations of the earth. And then he goes on to say that you have created the heaven and the earth. Because you, ha you have created these things, you're greater than all of these things. You're greater than the heaven. You're greater than the rulers of the earth. So it is to you alone that I'm looking to. After having adored and worshipped God, having praised his holy name, Hezekiah now comes to his petition. In verse 17, we read, Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Hezekiah uses the Hebrew word Adonai in referring uh, to, to God, and it means Lord or Master. Uh, Hezekiah, in his prayer, in petitioning God, he is acknowledging that God is his Lord, that God is his Master, and he is his servant. Hezekiah is his servant. He is using anthropomorphic language in addressing God. Uh, anthropomorphism is where God allows himself to be given human characteristics. And this is for us to be able to relate to God, uh, for us to be able to understand who he is, because God is transcendent, and we need uh, to have that human language for us to be able to uh, understand him and to worship him. And this, of course, comes to full fruition when God himself becomes man, when the word became flesh, when Christ takes on humanity. And in that sense, when he, when he did that, Christ is able to relate to us in our human afflictions and our distress at every level uh, in his humanity. So Hezekiah's main concern, even in his petition, is that Jehovah Sabaoth, his Elohim, is Adonai be hallowed. He is concerned for the honor and name of his God, even in this petition. Yes, the, uh, the Assyrians are going to threat their, threaten their lives. They'll cease to exist as a nation, likely be deported as they had deported the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. But he is first concerned about the name of God because the Assyrians have mocked his living God. He also draws, Hezekiah also draws a contrast between Yahweh and the gods of the other nations. And we see that uh, we've already seen that in verse 17. We'll see that further in uh, verses 18 and 19. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. 
So Hezekiah says, Elohim, you are real. You're the living God. And uh, the God of the other nations, they are the works of human hands, of wood and stone. It is no wonder, it doesn't surprise me or shouldn't surprise us that those nations were conquered because the gods of their nations were idols. They were not real gods. They were unable to deliver their people. Their people were not only destroyed, but their gods were also destroyed because they were idols. And God says this of himself. Uh, it's not something that Hezekiah is, anything that Hezekiah is declaring to be new. This is what God had said of himself. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And that is in Hezekiah, uh, Isaiah 42. Turn uh, with me to Psalm 96, verses 4 through 5. Look at that. Psalm 96, verses 4 through 5. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So after uh, making this contrast, draw, drawing this contrast between Yahweh and the, uh, and the gods, so-called gods of the other nations, Hezekiah continues his petition in, uh, in verse 20. He says, So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. He uses the personal pronoun our to refer to God. He is not only Hezekiah's God, but he is also the God of his people, of the children of, of Judah and Israel, having covenanted himself to be their God. So, uh, and his petition is pretty simple. Save us. Lord, save us. And they need rescue from this Assyrian threat to continue to exist as God's covenant people. And the reason to what end? What end? To what end did he want? Did Hezekiah want the nation to be rescued? He wanted them to be rescued so that the rest of the world might know that you alone are God. In Isaiah chapter forty-five, verses five and six, if you turn with me, Isaiah chapter forty-five, verses four and six. Sorry, five and six. This is what God uh, says of himself uh, through his prophet Isaiah. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So here, Hezekiah responds to the Lord in prayer. So now we begin to see how does God respond to Hezekiah's prayer. Starting in verse 21, Isaiah 31, starting in verse 37, starting in verse 21. Then Amos, the son of, uh, then Isaiah, sorry, the son of Amos, 
sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because ye have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. To note in verse 21 that the Lord uses the same names. He uses, it refers to himself as Lord and the God of Israel. He uses the same names that Hezekiah used in praying to the Lord. So there is uh, uh, harmony here in how God responds to his servant Hezekiah. And he claims himself still as the God of Israel. The, the, the children of Israel had rebelled against him. They had been disobedient to him. But yet God is faithful to them, as, as faithful to his covenant as their God, even though they had been unfaithful. And Yahweh acknowledges Hezekiah's prayer. He says, because you have prayed to me. You see, God uh, is not only sovereign in, the, in, in what he ordains and how he ordains uh, the ends to come about, but he has also ordained the means to the various ends. And one of the means that he uses to accomplish his purposes in our lives is through our prayers. And this is an illustration of how, of how God uses Hezekiah's prayer to accomplish his purposes. Isaiah goes on to say, uh, state, who is the object of this ridicule? In verse 23, he asks, whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. God is saying, I, you have not mocked a mere man. You have not mocked a human ruler. You're not mocking uh, an idol. You're mocking the Holy One of Israel, the only living and true God. And God is now arousing himself to bring judgment against this king who had mocked him. And we read the, uh, the boast of the Assyrian king in that he boasts in himself and his, in his human strength. Uh, in verse 24, he says, with, my, with many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, to, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up the sole of my foot, all the streams of Egypt. If you turn with me uh, to Isaiah chapter 10, there is a, uh, a further a rendering of God's judgment and statement of how the Assyrian king had uh, takes pride in his own uh, own might and in his own strength. Uh, Isaiah chapter ten, verses seven through eleven. And notice the use uh, of the words "I," "me," "my," all personal, referring to oneself. He says, uh, but he does not so intend, that is the Syrian king, and his heart does not so think. It is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. He says uh, in verse 10, as my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, the carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem. 
shall I not do to Jerusalem? In verse 14, my hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And God goes on to say, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. So God says that the Assyrian king has boasted himself in himself and his own ability in accomplishing all these things, the conquest of the surrounding nations and the potential conquest of the nation of Judah, but he forgets that I am the one who is the power behind this conquest. I am the one who has anointed him to be the king of Assyria and who has empowered him to accomplish all these human conquests. Uh, In uh, Isaiah chapter 10, uh, verse 5 and 6, God says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against my people of my wrath, I command him. Turn back again to our main passage in uh, uh, Isaiah 37. Uh, Specifically in verse 26, we'll look at that. This is God speaking again, referring to himself. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins. So God is saying, I am the power behind what you have all accomplished. I allowed you to do that. I am the sovereign king. You are not. E.J. Young comments, the things that occur on this earth are the outworking of a purpose and plan that God devised in eternity before the foundation of the world. Yahweh did not devise this plan somewhere early in Israel's history. He devised it in eternity. What Sennacherib is now doing and has been doing is simply the carrying out of the eternal purpose of God. God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, and that is also true with respect to Sennacherib and the Assyrian invasions, end quote. So after pronounced, uh, reminded Sennacherib who the true sovereign king is and who, the, who is behind uh, the power of his conquest, uh, uh, Yahweh pronounces judgment on the Assyrian king. We read in uh, verse 29 the judgment that is pronounced on the Assyrian king. Because you have raged against me, and your complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your, in your mouth, and I will turn you back on, by the way that which you have come. And also, if you look at in verse uh, 10, uh, sorry, chapter 10, Isaiah chapter 10, and verse 12, Isaiah 10, 12, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So we see here that God is impartial in his judgment. He chastises his covenant people Israel because of their iniquities, their rebellion against him, and he uses the godless Assyrians to chastise his people. 
and he turns around and he punishes Sennacherib and the Assyrians for their wickedness towards him. So King Sennacherib, he fulfills all the character traits which uh, the Holy One of Israel abhors. Hence, because of his wickedness, uh, God, Yahweh, rightly judges this wicked king. So how is this going to be full? Uh, God uh, promises not only fulfillment of judgment, but he also gives a couple of signs, two signs as to how this uh, uh, judgment is to be fulfilled. The first sign of fulfillment is the sign of harvest. And the second sign of fulfillment is the sign of battle, or we'll find out of, of no battle. The sign of harvest. Uh, Isaiah chapter 37, verse 30. And this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap, and plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. So in the first year, the people are to eat what uh, has already remained or survived in the land. Uh, the Assyrians had also had ravaged the land, and God had graciously preserved part of the harvest or the par, uh, part of the harvest from the previous year uh, to provide for the people in the first year. And then he goes on to say, in the second year, you will survive on what has sprung uh, from the accidental uh, uh, falling of, of, uh, of, of sowing. They, they had not sowed purposefully, but God had preserved a harvest uh, for the second year because it is only in the third year that the people will begin to sow and, and reap and eat of their harvest. So life will continue as it had been in the past because God will, will preserve his nation. He will not only preserve his nation, Israel, but he will judge the Assyrians who had attempted to conquest the nation of, uh, of Israel and Judah. And the sign of the battle. What sign does God give regarding the battle? And we read that in verse 31. Um, and the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall take root downward and bear fruit upward. Sorry, uh, uh, verse 33. Verse 33. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall, come, he shall not come out into, his, uh, into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it. So there is no battle to be fought. Not an arrow would be shot. No, uh, no mounds would be built by the Assyrians uh, to, to have a siege of Jerusalem. God will save his people. He will save his nation by the strength of his own might. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that is how he delivers his people. And why does God de defend Jerusalem? Why does God save Jerusalem from falling to the Assyrians? We see that, we read that in verse 35. For I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. God is to be glorified in his judgment of the Assyrians 
of those who rebel against him, and God will be, ju- will be glorified in his salvation of his people, and he alone will get his, the glory. And for the sake of his servant David, here God is remembering the covenant that he had made with his servant David when he said, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It is from the lineage of David and of Hezekiah that shall come a ruler who will shepherd his people Israel. And this is Christ our Lord. Having accomplished his redemption on the cross, Christ the King now ensures that his progeny fills the earth, that a a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession are proclaiming his excellencies to all the world. And this is what has been at stake here. If the Assyrians had prevailed, the lineage of David would have been cut off because Hezekiah was in the lineage of David and he was the forefather of, of the greater king, King Christ Jesus. And we read in uh, verses 36 to 38 the demise of the Assyrian king and his army. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down the 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. So we see that one angel of God goes about in one night and he slays 185,000 valiant men of the, of the army of Assyria. The chronicler states that it was not only the mighty warriors that were slain, but also the commanders and officers in the, king, in the camp of the king of Assyria. So we're told that uh, Sennacherib returns to his homeland. He returned with shame of face to his own land. And he, uh, I don't know at what point, he enters the temple to worship his, uh, his god, uh, Nishrok, who is an idol, and we see here that there is no repentance on the part of Sennacherib after having witnessed the hand of the sovereign God in slaying his army, instead of turning to God and worshiping him and acknowledging him as the one true God, he returns to his homeland only to return to his idolatry, and he's worshiping his idol Nishrok. And while worshiping his idol Nishrok, uh, has, uh, Sennacherib is murdered by his own sons. He dies not on the battlefield at the command of his army, but rather he dies in his own homeland, worshiping in his temple, worshiping that idol. So there's a contrast to be drawn between King Hezekiah and King Sennacherib. King Hezekiah, at the onset of, onset of our story here, he enters the temple to worship Yahweh, and Yahweh delivers him from death. Sennacherib, on the other hand, upon returning to his homeland, enters the temple of his god, the idol Nishrok, and he is delivered unto death uh, by the hands of Yahweh, uh, being murdered by his own sons. So let's end with application here. The first point of application I'd like to see, I'd like for us to take away is the wrath of God. Scripture unashamedly 
revealed to us that our God is a God of wrath. Here again the words of Isaiah, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize, uh, seize plunder. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, has written a chapter on the wrath of God. This is part uh, of the quote, uh, or part, uh, an excerpt from that chapter. He defines wrath as being an old English word, defined as deep, intense anger and indignation. God's wrath in the Bible is never the human anger so often, Sorry, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to moral evil. Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be morally perfect? Surely not, but it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil which is a necessary part of moral perfection that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath, end quote. He goes on to say that God's wrath is judicial, where God, as the judge of the earth, is administering justice to us who rightly deserve his wrath for our wickedness and sinfulness. The wrath of God was fully revealed to us, to all of humanity on the cross. God delivered us from his wrath, which should have rightly fall upon us for our wickedness and disobedience to him. And God delivered Christ, his son, to his wrath in our stead. So we would do well to frequently meditate on the wrath of God. A.W. Pink gives us three reasons for meditating on the wrath of God. The first, that our hearts may be duly impressed by God's detestation of sin. We're ever prone to regard sin lightly, to gloss over its hideousness, to make, to make excuses for sin. But the more we study and ponder the, the wrath of God, the more likely we are to recognize its heinousness. Second is to beget a true fear of God in our souls. We cannot serve him acceptably unless there is due reverence for his awful majesty and godly uh, fear of his righteous anger. And the third reason that A.W. Pink provides for us to meditate on the wrath of God is that it would draw out our soul in fervent praise to Jesus Christ for having delivered us from the wrath to come. The second application is prayer. And we would do well to model or to uh, look at Hezekiah in the way that he prayed to his, uh, to his God. The first thing that Hezekiah does is that he praises and adores his triune God. He hallows his name as our Lord Jesus Christ teaches us in the Lord's Prayer. As one pastor puts it, the first order of business in prayer is to talk to God about God. And we do that by praising and worshiping his holy name. And also in the petition that Hezekiah uh, uh, seeks God in is that God would be magnified in whatever trial or affliction, 
We should seek God's glory. Whatever difficult circumstances or trial or affliction that God sees fit to ordain in our lives, if we would seek his glory uh, in that trial or affliction as we seek his help from that trial, God would be pleased in, in honoring our prayer. Uh, last thing of application, and I'll hand, end here, is that God is still at work among the Assyrians. And in a li- very literal sense, Isaiah chapter uh, 19, verses 23 to 25, read that quickly. Now, rem- now remember, just a couple of generations ago, uh, the Assyrians uh, had the gospel presented to them through the prophet Jonah, and they experienced a great revival in their land, and yet they had strayed from the God whom they used to worship as a result of that revival they experienced in that land. But God was not through with them yet. Verses 23 to 25, uh, Isaiah chapter 19. In that day there will be a, a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my, in- my inheritance. So that should cause us to pray for the work that God is doing among uh, the descendants of the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and all the nations of the world. We should pray for missions and be involved in missions, not only locally, but also internationally, globally. And I've, uh, and I've provided for you three resources. I would encourage you to look into that. Uh, it'll aid you in your prayer and also provide greater awareness of what God is doing among the nations. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you and I praise you, Lord, for this time that we could spend together studying your holy word. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would uh, continue to prepare our hearts as we would worship you. Uh, uh, in the worship service that our worship would give you glory and praise. I thank you and I praise your holy name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.